As the children make their way back to their pews, would you please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as you do that, I want you to, to go back with me uh, and, and sort of, I want to let you step into the mind of my seven-year-old self. That kind of sounds a little scary. But in, in, in my seven-year-old mind, I, I have to tell you, you may not believe it, but I didn't care much for Easter. It was my least favorite holiday. As you can tell in that picture there, I'm thrilled. First of all, I mean, the Easter bunny... I mean, what he brings just doesn't compare to what Santa Claus brings. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just, just not quite as good. And, and, and then you don't have time to play with anything the Easter Bunny brought you because you've got to get dressed to go to church. And getting dressed to go to church meant I had to wear a suit and tie. Yuck. I hated that. And, and then, you know, afterward, you went outside and you had to stare in the glaring sun for family photos, which always seemed to take forever. And then we go home and eat lunch. And, and I just got to tell you, of all the holiday food, to this day still, Easter food is my least favorite because it's, it's ham and deviled eggs and green bean casserole, right, and, and vegetables. That's what you get. And especially for a seven-year-old, that's just not thrilling. And then you may say, well, David, what about the Easter egg hunt? Didn't you like the Easter egg hunt? Well, that all sounds great, kids, except back in the day when you found the Easter eggs, they didn't have candy in them. They were hard-boiled eggs. So all you got to eat was cold egg. So Easter just was not my favorite. And, and so as a kid, a world without Easter to me would not have been that awful. At least that's what I thought at the time. Now, don't get me wrong, I was a Christian. I loved Jesus. I believed in His crucifixion, celebrated the resurrection, but the real weight and joy of the resurrection just escaped the attention of that seven-year-old boy. I never considered what a world without Easter would really be like. And that's what I want us to think about this morning. How much the resurrection of Jesus Christ matters. How world-changing it truly was. How it can actually change our lives today. And so let's look together at 1 Corinthians 15 because in this chapter, Paul is dealing with people in Corinth who denied the idea of the resurrection of the dead when Christ returns. Because these were Roman people, and to the Greco-Roman mind, the idea of the resurrection of your body was, was, was just sort of uh, unbelievable. It was, it was a, a foolish idea. A death to them, well, that was the end of the body. And of course, we know not much has changed throughout the centuries. Many people today have the same sort of skeptical view of Christianity, of the idea of heaven and hell, of the idea that our bodies are going to raise to new life when Jesus Christ returns. But what really broke Paul's heart and led him to write this chapter is that these were Christians in Corinth who were denying the very idea of a future resurrection while they claimed to believe that Jesus did rise from the dead. And so Paul boldly responds. He argues that you can't have one without the other. That if there's no future resurrection for believers in Jesus, then how can you say that Jesus rose from the dead? And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, well, Paul tells us that changes everything. So let's use Paul's argument here to help us imagine a world without Easter, to consider what difference does it make that Jesus rose from the dead. Is it that important for us today to believe that the tomb is still empty? Well, the first thing Paul tells us is that a world without Easter is a world without the gospel. It's a world without the gospel. Look at verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, He appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Notice at the beginning of this chapter, Paul's purpose in writing to them is to remind them of the gospel. The gospel that he preached to them, the gospel they received, that they had believed, that they had taken their stand on, the gospel by which they were saved. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of God's saving work through Christ Jesus. And in verse 3, Paul tells us that what is of first importance in that gospel, is that Jesus died, that He was buried, and that He rose from the dead. And after His resurrection, He made multiple appearances to His followers, including to Paul Himself. See, Jesus' Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are essential elements of the gospel story. Now, for most Christians... If you've ever presented the gospel to someone, or maybe at VBS or Upward Basketball Awards Night, someplace you've heard a gospel presentation, it goes something like this. God created us and loves us, but we are sinners. And we've rebelled against God. And because He is holy and just and we are sinful, our sins deserve to be punished. We cannot spend eternity in the presence of God, and so we'll spend eternity separated from God in hell. But not only is God holy and just, He's also loving and so God sent His one and only Son to die on the cross for our sins, to take upon Himself our punishment, to pay our debt so that we might experience the forgiveness and grace of God. And if we will admit our sins, and if we will believe in Him and call upon Him to forgive us and to save us, we'll be saved. That's the gospel. Now sadly, as in that presentation I just made, Oftentimes, when we present the gospel, you know what we leave out? Or, or maybe it just gets a passing mention? The resurrection. That's right. Now, now, don't get me wrong. It's natural when you're talking about the plan of salvation. You're talking about the cross, right? Jesus died for our sins. Of course, we're going to talk there. We need to take people to the cross, but we don't need to leave them there. Paul teaches that we must take people not to the cross, but through the cross to the empty tomb. The reality is that the death of Christ cannot be divorced from the resurrection of Christ when we speak about the gospel. And, and Paul talks about this in Romans 10.9, which is part of the Roman road. And the Roman road is one, one way that we can present the gospel to people. Romans 10.9 says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now notice what Paul says there. Paul doesn't say anything in this passage about believing in your heart that Jesus died on the cross, does he? 
Now, of course, Jesus had to die on the cross. There'd be no resurrection. There'd be no Easter Sunday if there wasn't a good Friday, right? So the cross is implied in this. But Paul's point is that it's not enough just to believe that Jesus died. Everybody does that. You have to believe that Jesus conquered death, that He is the living Lord. You have to believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Because if Jesus had not risen from the grave, there would be no gospel. If Jesus had not risen from the grave, He would either be a liar or a lunatic. Because He claimed to be God the Son. He claimed to to be the indwelling of the Godhead bodily. And so if He died on the cross and that was it, then it was all a sham. He would have said a few good things, worked a few miracles, and then that would be it. There's no good news there. Now, in the rest of this passage, Paul further explains why there would be no good news, no gospel without Easter. The second thing he tells us is that a world without Easter is a world where faith is futile. Faith is is, is useless. It's meaningless. Look what he says beginning in verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Paul here points out the inconsistencies of the Corinthians' faith. They say they believe in Jesus' resurrection, but they deny that when Jesus returns, He'll resurrect all of His followers. If they're going to deny the possibility of their future resurrection, then why hold up the possibility of Christ's resurrection? Paul argues that if Jesus' followers cannot be raised bodily, then Jesus was not bodily raised. Christ's resurrection, you see, invalidates any philosophical objection to the idea of resurrection. The concept that Jesus was raised literally, physically, on that Easter Sunday is essential to the gospel. Paul says in verse 13 that without the resurrection, the gospel would be false. In verse 14, he says that preaching it would be useless. And in verse 15, he says, even worse, if Christ has not been raised, then anyone who preaches that, not only are they a liar, but they are falsely testifying about God. And so believing it would be futile. Christianity is a senseless religion apart from the risen Christ. Why should we waste our time believing in a false religion and making ourselves liars? Paul says to do so would be foolish. Now this argument, I think it struck home with the Corinthians because Paul had previously reminded them how it was their faith in this gospel that had so transformed their lives. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
See, their new lives proved the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To deny that Jesus was raised was to deny the very faith that made them who they were. The risen Christ is essential to our identity as Christians. As people whose lives have been transformed. I mean, how can a dead Christ transform anyone's life? What good is it to trust in and worship and pray to a man who died and decayed in a Middle Eastern tomb 2,000 years ago? Timothy Keller explains in his book, The Reason for God, he says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that He said. If He didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what He said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like His teaching, but whether or not He rose from the dead. And that is why Paul says that that is of first importance. And what else can explain the amazing transformation that occurred in the lives of the disciples? I mean, if you look in the Gospels before the resurrection, His twelve disciples were a group of milquetoast men. But afterward, they became martyrs for the cause of Jesus Christ. What transformed them? Peter went from denying Jesus, and a few weeks later, he's in Jerusalem publicly preaching Jesus. He went to jail for Jesus. He even died for Jesus. What changed Peter? Why would these Jewish men change their day of worship from Sabbath, which was on Saturday, to Sunday? How was the faith of so many devout Jews changed on that Pentecost Sunday? If the resurrection were just a myth or a metaphor, why would the apostles have been willing to be martyrs for it? Without the resurrection, Paul says, faith in Jesus is futile. It's foolish. Now, intimately tied to this idea is another reason why we must believe in the resurrection. Because a world without Easter is also... A world without forgiveness. Look what he goes on to say there in verse 17. He says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Now, this is perhaps the most sobering statement Paul makes in this chapter. As I said earlier, sometimes we limit our understanding of salvation to Jesus' death. And certainly, the death of Christ is important as the basis of our salvation. I mean, Paul wrote to the Roman Christians that it's through Jesus' one act of righteousness that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to receive by faith. So yes, the death of Christ is, is essential, but there's more to be said. Not only does the substitutionary death of Christ save, but so does His resurrection. Consider Peter's first sermon on that Pentecost Sunday. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he openly preached to over 3,000 people. Thousands and thousands of people. We know 3,000 were saved that day. And in that first sermon, Peter preached. Peter preached. Say that five times real fast. In that first sermon, Peter preached. I still didn't get it right, did I? In that first message, listen to what he said. He said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man 
was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter doesn't end right there. He keeps going. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The resurrection was just as critical to the gospel as the crucifixion. And Paul goes on in Romans to explain why. Listen in Romans 4.25. He's talking about how Abraham was justified by faith. And he says, But also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in Him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. And get this. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You see, Jesus hung on that cross and He took our sins upon Himself. He put to death our guilt and our shame on that cross. But when, when God raised Jesus from the dead, He was saying that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable. That He satisfied the wrath of God. And so God's approval of Christ's substitutionary death, His approval demonstrated by raising Him from the dead, is directed to all of us who place ourselves in Christ by faith. This is how we receive God's grace by faith. Our justification is a real consequence of Jesus' resurrection. No wonder Paul said that if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And if we're still in our sins, that means we can have no confidence, no assurance of our salvation. So it's not an overstatement to say that we are saved by the power of the cross and the empty tomb. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, our faith would be futile. We would still be in our sins. We would still be guilty in God's eyes. We wouldn't have any relationship with God. We'd have no indwelling spirit. We'd have no fruit of the spirit. We would have no hope for an eternal destiny other than one of damnation and separation from God in hell. That's what a world without Easter would be. And finally, a world without Easter would be a world without hope. Listen to what Paul goes on to say beginning in verse 18 then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. You know, the hardest funeral to ever preach is the funeral for someone you know, who you're pretty certain did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I can't imagine preaching funerals in a world without Easter. It is the resurrection of Christ that gives us hope that death is not the end of our story. That our story has another chapter, an ongoing, eternal chapter. And here Paul tells the Corinthians that the only hope for their loved ones who have died, who have fallen asleep in Christ, the only hope for them is the reality of the resurrection. Otherwise, their loved ones are gone, lost forever. It is only because Jesus rose from the dead that we can say that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or that we can desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul goes on in verse 20. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all. All will be made alive. 
but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Christ's resurrection is the first fruit of a great harvest yet to come. And just as death came through that first Adam's sin, so also through the second Adam, through Jesus' death and resurrection, life is made available to all. But apart from the resurrection of Christ, we have no future hope. We have no life. And Paul uses some strong language there in verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, he says we are to be pitied more than all men. In other words, our hope in Christ, if it fails to extend beyond this present life, we are the most pitiful, pitiable people on the planet. I heard a preacher once say that Christian living was so beneficial that it would be better to live as a Christian than not, even if you find out in the end that Christianity was wrong. Now, I understand what he's saying. I get that sentiment. And we can certainly say that as 21st century Americans. We can really say, you know what? Living as a Christian is so much more preferable. I get so much tangible and intangible benefit from following Jesus in this life. And you know why we can say that? Because you and I hardly have to sacrifice or suffer anything to follow Jesus. But there are Christians all around the world today and those in the early church who had to sacrifice and suffer much. They lost family, jobs, reputations, their freedom, and even their lives. Imagine for me a moment that you left your home and your job and your family to follow Jesus. Imagine that you suffered ridicule and shame for claiming His name. Imagine that you're thrown in jail and beaten and you end up hanging on your own cross to die for Jesus. And imagine now that none of this was ever true. There was no resurrection. Christ isn't coming back. There is no hope for you after death. You simply end. And tell me that that's not pathetically tragic. Tell me you wouldn't be more pitied than anybody. Not only did you receive no benefit from your faith, but you also forfeited the pleasures of your brief life on earth. You see, a world without Easter would be a world without a gospel. It would be a world where faith is futile. It would be a world without forgiveness. And it would be a world without any eternal hope. But, thanks be to God, Christ did rise from the dead. Thanks be to God, there is an Easter. And guess what? That tomb is still empty. Colossians 2, 14 and 15. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul tells us exactly what Jesus accomplished two days ago on Good Friday. He says that Christ, it says, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. In other words, Jesus took that Old Testament law that you and I could never keep up to. Those Ten Commandments that every one of us in this room have broken, that stands against us saying, you're guilty. Jesus took that and He nailed it to that cross. And He put it to death. And then he says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, having disarmed the spiritual wicked powers and authorities, having disarmed the evil powers and authorities of this world that put him to death. He says, having disarmed them, he made a public spectacle of them. 
You see, when the Romans and the Jews hung Jesus on a cross, they were trying to make a public spectacle of Jesus. But the great irony, I think that the better April Fool's Day is what happened on Friday, not what happened on Sunday. Because they thought they were putting Jesus to death and shaming Him. But He took that cross, that symbol of shame, He turned it around and He shamed them. He made public spectacles of them and He triumphed over them by the cross. That's what Jesus did for us. He defeated all the enemies of sin and hell and all the wicked powers of this world. That's what He did on Good Friday. But Paul goes on to tell us what Jesus accomplished on Easter Sunday in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. You see, there was one more enemy left to be defeated. And he says the last enemy to be destroyed is what? Death. Through the empty tomb, Jesus defeated the final enemy, death. And so now, even as our weak and failing bodies will temporarily die, we will fall asleep in Christ. We can look death in the face, knowing that it has no victory. There is no lasting sting. As Paul goes on to write, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. I have good news and I have bad news for us this morning. The bad news is that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, yours is a world without Easter. See, the gospel is only good news to those who believe in it, who put their faith and trust in Jesus for salvation. If your faith is in yourself, your knowledge, your good deeds, your religiousness, if your faith is in yourself, your faith is futile. If you've not confessed and repented of your sins and turned to faith in Jesus Christ, then you cannot experience the forgiving grace of God. If you do not belong to Jesus, you have no eternal hope. That's the bad news. But the good news is so much better than the bad could ever be bad. Because the good news is, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how young or how old you may be, salvation and forgiveness and life and eternal hope are yours in Christ Jesus. You can experience them. You can have them. All you have to do is admit you need them. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you need a Savior. You need the grace of God in your life. Believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and He rose up from the dead to justify you and then call upon Him and say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come and live inside of me. I want to follow you. And if you do that, the Bible says you will be saved forgiven, given a fresh start. The hope, the power of Easter can be yours if you put your trust in Jesus. Maybe this morning you need to do that. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe this is your first Sunday in church. I don't know. But, I, but you know this, that you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Here in just a minute we're going to sing and I'm going to invite you as we stand and sing here in just a few minutes to come down and I would love to talk with you about how you can have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, how you can know the hope and the power and the joy of Easter every day. Maybe God has laid it upon your heart to unite with this church. You've been worshiping with us. You've been here with us for a while, but you know this is where God would have you plant your family and worship and grow. I invite you to come and unite with this church. Or maybe God has stirred something else in your heart. This altar is open. I will be here down front to speak with you and to pray with you.
So before we sing, let me lead us in a prayer, and then you respond as God leads you. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth. We thank you that we do not live in a world without Easter. We live in a world where death is not the end of the story. Death does not get the final word. Life is the final word. And Father, I thank you that you are the God of life. And I pray for those in this room today that don't know that spiritual, eternal, abundant life. They've not put their faith and trust in you before. I pray that today would be the day that they could begin anew and afresh walking in the footsteps of Jesus. God, I pray you would stir and move in our hearts and lead us to follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You stand and sing. And as we go, I want to close us in a word of benediction. Paul ends 1 Corinthians 15 in, in a powerful way. You know, because Christ is risen, because we do have a gospel, we do have hope, our faith is powerful, and forgiveness is ours, because that is true, Paul says this, and these are our words of benediction. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen? Amen.